you, and let's worship the greatness of our God because he's great in all the earth.
crushed by the weight of my failure, living the lie I created. Digging my grave without knowing, oh, but God, oh, but God, rich in mercy, how you love me, too much to let me stay lost. My salvation sent from heaven, nailing my sin to a cross, oh, but God. You gave me a truth worth believing. I traded my chains for your freedom. You were the one that I needed, oh, but God. Resurrected my heart from the ruins. My rescue came through like the morning. Now this is my short testimony. Oh, but God, oh, but God, rich in mercy, how you love me, too much to let me stay lost. My salvation sent from heaven, nailing my sin to the cross. Rich in mercy, how you love me, too much to let me stay lost. My salvation sent from heaven, nailing my sin to the cross. Oh, but
mentioned, we're starting Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, or this evening. And in um, verse 5, it says of chapter 1, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We are so loved. His love is so great that he took us out of our darkness and brought us into his kingdom. And just as we sang, how he took us, this next song continues on that theme of how great is your love. From the darkness I called your name into darkness your mercy came you called me out lifted me up how great is your love for my weakness you took my shame buried my burdens in fields of grace you called me out lifted me up how great is your love from the heights of heaven you stepped down to earth innocent perfection Gave your life for us, and we are amazed. Yes, we stand in awe, for we have been changed by the power of the cross. How great, how great, how great is your love. How great, how great, how great is your love. How great, how great. How great is your love for us. In your kindness, you lead me home. In your presence, where I belong. You called me out, lifted me up. How great is your love.
and there will never be a God like you, a love so true, there has never been, and there will never be a God like you, a love so true, there has never been, and there will never be. God like you, a love so true. How great, how great, how great is your love. How great, how great, how great is your love. How great, how great, how great is your love. think about your love, it's really beyond what we can even fathom sometimes. But we pray that as Paul, we're going to see later on in Ephesians where Paul prayed, that we would know the height, the breadth, the length, and the depth of your love for those that you have called your children So we thank you for your love. We thank you again for all that you've done for us. You are great. And we thank you for your love that covers us, that surrounds us, that upholds us each and every day. How great, how great, how great is your love. How great. How great, how great is your love. How great, how great, how great is your love for us. Amen. Amen. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to Ephesians as we continue to... Journey through God's Word and taking a look at Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus. Ephesians is one of those letters from Paul that is just amazing. It's been said that it's a, a treasure trove of blessing to be able to see all the different things that, that God has given to the believer. And helps the believer to understand both their place and the blessings that God has given to them. If you ever wonder where do I fit and what is what is God doing in my life, this is a book that you really want to study and, and know well. Uh, God's plan, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, for us. And, and all of these writings that are in here, they're amazing to be able to uh, study. Paul wrote this letter, and it's broken down in, into two parts. The first three chapters really deal with the believer's blessings that are there. In other words, how blessed we are. And we're going to really see that tonight. There's a whole list that, that Paul will give us even in, in launching this. It's unique even in the introduction. And then the second part of Ephesians is the believer's behavior. And how we should act towards one another and act towards one another in a loving way. And if we understand how blessed we are, 
and how blessed we are as, as a child of God in our position, it's going to change the way that we respond to other people. It's going to allow us to have great confidence, great encouragement. We're going to realize how, how uh, blessed we are in, in so many different ways. Now, we start out in Ephesians and just really understanding in verses 1 and 2, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are the faithful in Jesus Christ. So we start out in the beginning where Paul gives to us the fact that he's the writer of this letter. There's really no doubt. There's some modern commentators who will say, well, did Paul really write this or did somebody write it for him? We know who Paul is. We've studied Acts and we've done this. This is Paul who used to be known as Saul, who first came to being in Scripture in Acts chapter 7 at the stoning of Stephen. Remember, he was holding the coats. He was the Pharisee that was there that was saying, yes, I'm giving an assent to Stephen's stoning and to this death. And he would, he would, from that point on, really take it upon himself to make it his personal mission to persecute the church. He was in that. And so this book, especially, is almost like a, like a premiere of Paul's writings. It's, it's like the best. If you were to look at all of the letters, this one really is the crown jewel of it because he spent a lot of time with Ephesus that's there. In fact, in order to understand the timeline, and we are blessed because we just finished the book of Acts in, in our in-depth. So if you can remember back, Ephesus is recorded as being part of Paul's first missionary journey about the year 53 A.D., in fact, 18, and he went on and he came through into Ephesus. And then two years later in Acts in AD 55 was his third journey. And if you remember, he spent two years there. It was the longest time that Paul would spend with any one group of people where he was preaching daily in the hall of Tyrrhenius. And he was making disciples and, and all of that. And then they had the riot with Demetrius and the silversmiths, if you remember that, and they wanted to go after Paul and take him into the amphitheater um, from the Agora with that. And we were blessed when we went to Turkey. We got to walk through the streets of Ephesus. And we walked down the streets. And it's amazing. You come through this big gate and you go through these streets that are there and you can see these places where there was a, a small amphitheater little for the for the courts and such. And then you go a little bit further and you can see the bathhouses and, and then you can see the halls. And down at the end of the street was the library, the great library that was there. And then you make a right and you go down the street a little bit further. And then you have the amphitheater and then you have the market and then the, the, the harbor would have been to the left. And it's just an amazing, amazing place to walk through those streets and realize Paul was there. Paul walked on those very streets that we walked on. And he taught, and for two years, spending time teaching. But the problem was, the city was under great spiritual warfare. Why? Because of the amount of idolatry that was there. And the Judaizers that were coming in and trying to steal people away. And so within this, there was a, a great warfare. And that's why in Ephesians 6, 10, he talks about the armor of God within this. Because of their warfare. Now, keep in mind, as Paul writes this, he's writing from a standpoint of it being a prison epistle. 
Now, he wanted to go back to Ephesus, and then later on in Acts 20, instead of going to Ephesus, he would drop down to Miletus. And again, in our trip, we went down to Miletus, not too far, and he met with the Ephesian elders. And he said, be careful, because there'll be some that come up from even within you to seek to draw you away. And so Paul had been there, and then he went back, and then as he came through, he was telling him and warning him, be careful, because he really cared for these people. He'd be arrested in Jerusalem, Acts 21, and then he would have to go to Rome, Acts 26, as we had gone through the book of Acts, and stay under house arrest in AD 60 to 62. And it was this time that Paul would have written the book of Ephesians, he would have written Colossians, he would also have written Philemon and Philippians during this time. All of these letters as the prison epistles. Now, again, you've got to understand this. He's writing these letters to these places where he started the churches. Writing these letters because these, in his mind, is going to be the last way that he is going to be able to leave them any nuggets of truth. And the last bit of teaching. And so that's why he really wants to emphasize both the blessing and the behavior. He wants them to understand how to be grounded in their faith. I think that's part of the reason why this book is so important for us as believers within this. And so we understand that, that all of this culture was going on and the radical divide between the Jews and the Gentiles and the idolatry and all the things that are going on. Because if we think about it today, what happens to a, a, a Christ follower if they start to question their roots? What happens if you start to question your position in Christ? Or you question, well, am I really saved? Or... Is it really worth it under persecution? You think about how many people would walk away from their faith today because of trials and difficulties and all these things. But what's going to keep you? What's going to keep you grounded when you meditate on the blessings of what God has done? And the We can overcome anything if we understand how blessed we really are within this. And... and while there's no real problem with the church per se, Paul wants them to check their behavior because one of the things that is essential is Christian unity between the Christian Jews and the Christian Gentiles. The church needs to be unified. Because if the church is divided, can Satan get in and, and cause havoc? Does it happen today? Imagine how many denominations there are in evangelical faith. So many. And they divide over the silliest things. Well, how do you baptize? We've got a baptism coming up here a week from Sunday. How do you baptize? Well, I baptize three times forward. I baptize one big dunk. I sprinkle. I dribble. Or whatever it is. And there will be people that divide over such things. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Unity of faith and the essentials of the faith is key. And so being a converted Gentile and a Jew at the same time, Paul was best equipped to be able to write to this group of believers that were there that were trying to work out how to come from different cultures and different faith structures to come to become one within this. As he's going to get and get, get along, as we'll see in chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. So Paul's going to read, but also Paul needs to, to tell the church 
This is how you need to discern truth. You need to come back to the Scriptures. You need to grow in a deeper faith. If you want to be a Christian that's stable in an unstable world, are we in an unstable world today? You need to know the truth. You need to know what God's Word says before you engage with the world. Because if you get out in the world and you don't know the Word of God, the world will eat you up. It will twist you up and spit you out within this. So Paul calls the church to a deeper truth from error, and we'll see that in Ephesians 5, 6, and 15, to grow in deeper fellowship with God, Ephesians 1, 17 to 19, as we'll see today. And then also this deeper knowledge of salvation in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 18. Because if I really understand the blessings that I have as a child of God, I will not be moved. I'll stand on those things. In fact, even to the extent I would die for these things. Because the deeper truth of God's word of who I am in Christ transcends anything in this world today. It's unchangeable, as we're going to see in a, in a bit. One of the things that we'll see is the, the security of the believer. And so he spent a lot of time in Ephesus teaching and training and giving them knowledge. Every day in this hall of Tyrrhenius, encourage them to be a united body within this. And he's also going to teach this hidden mystery of how Gentiles could ever become children of God. And those being Gentiles hearing this would be blessed to know that they're no longer people on the outside looking in. So again, let's just dive right in into the greetings in verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ. So one of the things, just to orient yourself, is a map that I want to share with you um, on this location. So this whole area up here is Turkey. And so we see the area of Galatia, which is where we were over the last few weeks, Cappadocia, that's in here. Caesarea, that's in there. This is where we actually did our hot air balloon ride, so that was kind of cool. But then we got on a plane. We flew all the way over here, and we started going through the seven churches. And so then we see that, that Miletus is right here. Ephesus is right above it, this little city. And then you've got Caesarea and or, uh, uh, Corinth and Athens and all that along here. So you can see he's right here on this coast. And Jerusalem is way over here. So, Paul is writing from a jail cell in Rome. And he's writing to the saints, the holy ones. And because this is a place where he's been, it was pretty easy. But he entitles himself as an apostle. He's very Pauline. And, and, he, and he goes the way, he, he says, this is who I am and this is my title. An apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, question... Did the Christians in Ephesus know who he was? Most. But because this was a letter that would have been written and read or read to all the people in the house churches, there would have been a lot of believers there that didn't know who Paul was. And so one of the things that Paul does is he exercises what's called apostolic authority. Apostolic authority. In other words, I have authority on behalf of Jesus Christ to give you this information and actually... To call you into account as an apostle. Why should I listen to this guy? Because he holds the title or the office apostle. By, by who? By God. In fact, Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 15, verse 8 and 9, he says, And last of all, as to one untimely born, literally it could be born, it's born again, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And you can't miss the humility in there, because Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. And in my mind, Paul, you wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. <laughs> You're in a pretty amazing apostle. You did more than, than what most of the apostles did, aside from, from John. And Peter, he did a pretty good job. But Paul, you're amazing. And he says, I'm the least. I was untimely born, and I wasn't part of the twelve. But he was called into faith by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. And he was born again out of time, out of the timeline of the other apostles within this. And he didn't feel worthy at all because he persecuted the church. One of the things about Paul is he never got over his past behavior. He really struggled with that on how he used to behave. Jesus could forgive him and did, but Paul really had a hard time forgiving himself. It always kept him in check in a sense of humility. Now, as his office of apostle, he was there to represent Jesus as an apostle and apostolic authority. And he would write later on, in the believer's behavior... There is a place for apostles. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12 says this, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some evangelists, and some as pastor teachers. Note, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Every office mentioned here in Ephesians 4 has got one job. One job. Build up the body of Christ. My job, build up the body of Christ. My job, equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip you, to equip the church, to do the work of ministry. In Western church culture, we've got it backwards where we think it's the pastor's job to do the work of ministry. No. It's the body's job to do the work of ministry. And pastorally for that position, my job is to teach to equip. Others will have gifts of service. Others will have gifts of help. Others will have gifts of administration. But we all work in building up. And we should all be making disciples and training people within this. Paul knew his calling. He was an apostle by the will of God, which is interesting because there is no self-promotion in this. In fact, Paul realized that God had called him early on, even before he was born. In Galatians 1.15, it says this, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased. Here's one of the amazing things. You're sitting here tonight, 2023, in a church, learning from God, hopefully as a Christ follower, and do you realize that before you were a twinkle in anybody's eye, God called you? God called you. Before you could ever do anything good or bad, God called you. You are blessed within this. That means you were chosen. You were not a byproduct or a, oh, by the way. And he's writing to the saints, which is another, in, in the introduction, just an amazing thing. Saints, do you know you're a saint? And you're like, I don't feel like a saint. 
You are. If you're a Christ follower, you're a saint. The word is hagios, holy ones. Ones that set apart. You say, well, I'm nothing but, but slime. No, you're not. You're a saint. You are holy and set apart for God's purpose. Now, this is not the same kind of saints that some faith traditions would say, well, you've got to go pray to this person so that they can pray to God on your behalf. No. You're not a saint because you did some kind of miracle, you didn't raise somebody from the dead or, you know, change a rock into bread or something like that. No. If you're a child of God, born again, you are a saint. And the next time Satan wants to lie to you and tell you you're less than, just remind him I'm a child of God and God calls me a saint. A holy one that's set apart for God's holy purpose. And, and it's not that you've achieved some kind of higher position of authority. It's who God says you are. It, it, it's, it's not about who you think you are. It really is about who God says you are. And, and you, need to, you need to stop that recording in your head about who you think you are or what people say about you. You need to declare the truth. I am a saint, a child of God. Chosen before the foundations of the world, as we'll study. In 1 Corinthians, Paul would uh, echo this and say this, So were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. All your sins are washed away. Have you ever met somebody that struggles with their past, that struggles with their past sin and for even forgiving themselves about that, where the, the, the recording goes in their head over and over again of all the wrong things that they've done and how could God save me and all this stuff. Paul says, no, that's a lie from the pit of hell. You are a saint. You are washed. You are justified within this. And it is a work that God has done. The second part of this address, and he says, to the saints and the faithful in Christ Jesus within this, meaning those that are live, living holy lives in Ephesus. What would it have been like? Well, let's see. Imagine trying to be a Christian in San Francisco today. Would that be difficult? Or Las Vegas? Or... Name whatever city where sin runs rampant. Portland. Um, it would be hard. And if you don't know who you are, you'll be overwhelmed by the evil. So Paul's writing to them, giving them this identity. And then he, then he gives them this blessing. He says in verse 2, grace and peace to you. Again, something very Pauline. Paul usually says grace and peace. What is grace? God's unmerited favor. In fact, it's used 61 times in the New Testament. Grace. God's unmerited favor of providing salvation to sinners. Peace. Used 211 times in the whole Bible. 211 times. What does peace mean? Because I have unmerited favor with God, I have peace with God. 
And it's the peace with God that gives me peace of mind that will guard, garrison my mind and my thought. you imagine how many people that struggle with depression and anxiety, if they could just stop and pause and reflect of how blessed they are and receive the grace that God has given them, how that will bring peace to their life. To be able to receive that. But to receive it means you have to let go of the things that are entangling you within this. Paul gives this introduction and then he goes right into, which is not very Pauline, a blessing. Paul typically, when he would write a letter, he would write a letter in such a way where he would give them an introduction. Hi, this is Paul. Grace and peace to you and so on. And then he would, you know, talk about how good they are to give a like a Thanksgiving. or. A, but in, in Ephesians, he doesn't do that. He goes right into the blessing um, in verses three through 14. And so we, we go right into this. Now, I want to preface verses three through 14 to give you a little information. Paul is known to ramble wander, and be very long-winded. In verses 3 through 14, it is one continuous sentence. It is nonstop. 202 words. And he just goes. And he just goes, why? Because he's excited. If you get behind the, the mind of Paul, he's writing to these guys and he says, "In grace and peace to you, and let me tell you about all the blessings that I want to I remind you of. Super excited about this and this work. In fact, some would even say that Paul broke out and they call this a Pauline hymn. As if he was singing these words. He is so full of joy. And so you say, well... How is Paul generating so much joy in writing this letter? And he goes 202 words and he goes continuous. You know how? Paul is sitting in a jail next to a Roman guard. And this is all that he can think of in from his own heart. And he says, this is how I feel and I want to share how I feel with you. This is, these are my words of encouragement that are encouraging me and I want to encourage you. So we'll read them all together, and well, I'll read them and, and follow along in, in verses 3 through 14. It says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, just as He has chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to all kind intention of His will, to the praise and the glory of His grace. And He was freely bestowed on us, the beloved, or in the beloved. And in Him we have redemption through His blood and forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him with a view to the administration suitable for the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things on the earth in Him. Also, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end 
that we were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. And in Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given us as a pledge and inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Oh, He breathes. You look at it, and it's just amazing. Why is he worshiping God? Because God is blessed. Have you ever sat down and actually counted your blessings? You want to know how to overcome depression? Count your blessings. Start making a list. Instead of counting all the woes, count the blessings. Start and make a list of all the things that God has done. When you count those blessings and you start naming them out and you think about how blessed you are, the woes start to go away. And it's all about your perspective. So many times we just need to change our attitude by changing our view. And so he starts out with a blessing and praise. And he says, blessed the God and the Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Do you know how blessed you are? Think about it. The trajectory of your eternity because you trusted in Jesus is going up. You're going to heaven. This last week, I, I counseled with people on four different cardiac arrests. I was on site for three of them in counsel with somebody who lost a father. All of them, all four of them, were not believers, and the households were not believers. And when you're around people that have not put their faith and trust in the Lord and they experience death, it is a kind of grief, a hopeless kind of grief that is so sad. And, and it's really hard to, to get somebody that's grieving at that level to turn around because they're not listening because they don't have a blessed hope. Paul starts out, you want to overcome grief? You want to overcome? Start by just worshiping God. Blessed be God. Giving blessing to God. It's interesting that word blessing is where we get our word eulogy from. To speak well of God, to bless Him. It's the idea of giving God honor and praise and worship. You want to overcome depression and anxiety? Just start worshiping God. Take your eyes off of your problem and your situation. Start worshiping Him. And so Paul says, blessed, and he starts worshiping God. Giving honor to God for all that He's done. And worship is how believers are blessed. In fact, it's interesting because Paul is reaching back to his Jewish roots. There is a, a practice in the Jewish faith. It's called Shimone Esrei. And it literally means blessings towards God. They would practice these blessings, and it was a, a repetition blessing. They would, it was a, a, a series of blessings that they would say, and there was 18 different blessings that the Jews would practice, and they would say it three times a day. Can you imagine sitting down and, and giving these blessings to God? 18 different blessings. Three times a day. Will that change your perspective? 
Sure it will. Because you're blessing and worshiping God. Why? Because God's worthy of praise. Where would you be if God had never, ever intervened in your life? Where would you be right now? Some of you are going, probably dead. Dead. Drunk in a gutter. Whatever. Where would you be? God is worthy to pray, be praised because of what He's done, but also because of who He is. Just His identity. He's worthy to be praised. And Paul identifies, and, and he's very Trinitarian in this. He says, Blessed be the God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to see God, the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit all in this passage that says, God the Son. And it's through the Son that we receive all of the blessings. Jesus is the, the means and the mode, the anointed one, the Son of God, that delivers all these blessings. And how do we get these blessings? Through the Holy Spirit. When Jesus ascended to heaven, He sent His Spirit to be with us. You're not alone. I know people that are sitting and soaking and souring and grieving the Holy Spirit who is present with them because the Holy Spirit wants to minister to the heart and they won't listen to Him. And they're sitting and soaking and souring and rotting. We don't have to live that way. God's given us everything to be joyful for. And everything to be looking up, regardless of what's going on. And notice he says, and he's given us all spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. And, and he's going to describe, there's a list. There's a list of about nine different spiritual blessings that's in this psalm. Nine different ones. He, gives, he tells us about the blessings that were chosen. We're predestined. We're adopted. We've got the blessing of grace. We've got the blessing of redemption, the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of revelation, the blessing of inheritance, the blessing of hope, the blessing of salvation, the blessing of security, and the blessing of being an eternal possession of God. Can you name anything in the world that offers that much? No. Not at all. And where is it all found? Paul says, in Christ. In Christ, you are secure, immovable, unshakable. God has blessed you. You say, well, Carrie, I don't feel very blessed. i got a terminal disease. Yeah? That's not in the heavenlies, that's in the earthlies. Carrie, I don't feel very blessed because I'm grieving a lost one. That's in the earthly. Look at your blessings in the heavenly. Because when you realize that which is in the heavenly is unchangeable, all the temporal doesn't matter. It's all going to go away. It's only temporary. In summary, Paul basically says God's to be praised by His people because we're a blessed people. You know, God could have been done with mankind a long time ago. Could God have been done with you a long time ago? I mean, could God say, okay, you know what, three strikes and you're out? If it was three strikes and I was out, I would have been done a long time ago. You think about it. How many times has God forgiven you and blessed you? Forgiven you and blessed you. Forgiven you and blessed you. Time. And you're like, yeah. So we look at the blessings. The first one. You're chosen. 
Chosen to be holy and blameless before Him. Verse 4. He chose us in Him. Who's Him? Jesus. Before the foundations of the world. For a purpose. That we would holy, be holy and blameless before Him in love. Left to yourself, would you choose God? No. Do people choose God or does God choose them? God chooses them. Because the natural man, as we study, cannot understand spiritual things. Left to ourselves, we would never go look for God. So God comes in looking for you. When? According to His perfect time and perfect plan and His perfect will. And He comes and finds you. Notice you were chosen in Christ. And you were chosen not by our own works, but by God's divine initiative. And what Paul does is amazing here. Because remember, there's the Jew-Gentile argument, right? And the Jews were saying, yeah, we're chosen of God. Gentiles, we're the red-headed stepchild. We don't feel like we're very chosen. The Jews are like, no, you weren't very chosen. You're just an afterthought. Paul says, no, you're not an afterthought. True, the Jews were chosen. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, it says this. And the Lord did not send his love on you, nor chose you because you were the more in number than the peoples, but you were the fewest of all the people. But because the Lord loved you and kept an oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Because God promised Abraham and chose Israel, he was faithful to his promise. And Paul is saying, look at to you Ephesians, you Gentiles, don't let them t- say that you are an afterthought. You're just as important as the Jews were when they were chosen in the Old Testament. Because there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. So you might say, okay, Carrie, does that mean because I didn't grow up as a Christian, but I just got saved and I got saved out of the world, that God sees me the same as the person that grew up in a Christian home, went to a Christian school and all of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. You are not an afterthought. God intentionally chose you. When? Before the foundations of the world. Which means there was absolutely nothing you can do to make yourself lovable so that God would choose you. Why? Because you weren't around yet. God chose you that way. And within this, we, we see what he does. He says, in him. Why does he say in him? Because God cannot bring a sinner to himself unless the sins are paid for by Jesus. So, next week when we do baptism, one of the keys about baptism is I've, I've identified myself as dying with Christ, buried with him, and rose again, symbolized in the water baptism. So with that, if you identify as, as a Christ follower, know that all your sins are paid for. And in Christ, God sees you perfect. You are blessed. And so believers are chosen with the goal in mind, too, to be holy and blameless and transformed from sinner to saint. God sees you that way. Second, because you were chosen, you were also predestined, which is kind of the pairing of it, to God's will to be adopted as a child of God. And God determined before creation, not only would he choose you to be saved, but he would choose you to be his own child. In Paul's day, and we've covered this in the past, 
when there was a Roman, uh, or I'm sorry, when there was a, a man that had no children in the Roman culture, if you had a slave that, that you wanted to adopt, you could adopt them and they would become your child and receive the inheritance, take your name and keep that inheritance going within the name. You're a child of God. You're taking the name of God's child with all the inheritance, the privileges afforded to that. And, and so, formerly you were labeled as a son of disobedience and wrath, but now you're a child of God. But notice he says, in the beloved. Now, why would Paul say, in the beloved? Here's why. Because God loves you with the same depth of love that he loves his son, Jesus. Because you are in Christ. That's powerful. God loves you the same way that he loves his son, Jesus, because he sees you in Christ. So there is no separation within that. It's this kind of love. It's a fatherly love within this. In the beloved. It's the grace of God in the beloved. And that's huge. Third, you've been redeemed through the blood of Christ. Verse 7, he says, we have this redemption through the blood. Within this, Hebrews 9.22 says this, And according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness. All right, so I've been chosen. Praise God. I've been predestined to become adopted as a child of God. But to do that, God provided the way to have all of my sins removed through the death of His Son, whom He loves. But He loves me with the same depth by which He loves His Son. He loves me. I love you guys, but I would never give up a child for you. You're special, but you're not that special. Yeah, I know. Right here. Hurt you. But the reality is God loves you equitably, sacrificed His Son for you sacrificially so that you would be His eternally. Do you understand that? God loves you equitably as He does His Son Yet he gave up this son sacrificially for you so that you could be with him eternally. And that should blow your mind. That should just blow your mind. That somebody would love you that much. And to do that, he forgives the sins, which is the fourth element of blessing. That the sins that you sinned have no longer any hold on you. The blessing of forgiveness is, is there. And, and this word forgiveness literally means to remove the debt of a slave. Your debt of sin is gone. You say, well, I remember my sins, but God says, yeah, well, you did, but they're not on your account anymore. They're not against you anymore. David wrote in Psalm 32, 1 and 2, after he realizes his forgiveness from his sin with Bathsheba, says this, Note, how blessed is he whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity 
and whose spirit there is no deceit. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion. We'll take the bread, which will remind us of the body of Jesus, and the blood that reminds us, or the cup that reminds us of the blood that was shed. But when you take these elements, understand these are symbols that remind you that you are pure, washed, clean, sin gone, no more, no separation. Now, what would happen if I don't confess my sin? Here's the counterpart. People that don't know this kind of forgiveness. In Psalm 32, 3 and 4, David said, and this is before Samuel caught him, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever of the heat of summer. Do we know people in the community that are like that, that are wasting away under the weight of depression and anxiety? Because they're either living under the bondage of sin or they're living under self-condemnation. Now, the sad part is, if they're living under the bondage of sin, Jesus could remove that sin and forgive them, set them free. But if you're a believer living under self-condemnation, you don't have to live that way. Claim that forgiveness and that redemption within this. And receive the riches of His grace, verses 7 and 8. He says, In Him we have redemption through His blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Question. Does the grace of God ever run out? No. Unmerited favor. How much is unmerited favor? How many times will God forgive you? Forever. Is the blood of Jesus enough to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and all sin? Absolutely. Have you ever met somebody who says, well, God's not going to forgive me of that sin? I don't know which God they're thinking about. But the God I know, the God of the Bible, He he cleanses all sin. All sin? Yes, all sin. Even though I've done this, that, or the other? Yes. But if He really knew who I am... Newsflash, he does. And he still loves you. While I was yet a sinner, Jesus died for me within this. God knows. And we think of the depth of his grace, Ephesians 3 8. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Look at that. Just pause on that verse for a minute. To me, the very least of the saints. Does that tell you that Paul still is aching over his past behavior? Yes. But then he focuses on the grace and he says, to the grace given to me to preach. What? The unfathomable. You can't count them. It blows your mind. As God reveals himself, verses 8 through 10. This grace enables us to understand what God has given to us. This, where it says He lavishes this wisdom, make known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, purpose in Him. Do you realize on your laps, whether it's a book or electronic device, do you realize that you have the words to eternal life sitting right there? This is a living document as we're going to talk about Sunday. How the Word of God speaks 
And everything that is there, this, this revelation about all these truths. People are searching for cures for cancer. Medical assistance to deal with depression and anxiety and all of these other things. And everything we need is right here. Do we still need medicine? Sure. Still need medicine. But medicine doesn't change the heart. God does. It's, it's medicine to the soul. We have divine revelation. And God has been giving grace to us to, to understand who He is. So then, Paul turns the corner. And he talks about how we experience this. What are our experiences? Verses 11 to 14. He says, And we have obtained an inheritance which has been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Do you guys see that phrase, all things? Is there anything that catches God by surprise? All things. Okay, Carrie, so that means stage 4 cancer that I was just diagnosed with. No treatment. Is that an all thing? Yes. Loss of a loved one? Yes. Job change? Yes. Corrupt government? Yes. All things. All things means all things within this. But the other all things is this, that God has predestined all things for us to have an eternal inheritance. And so for the, for the second class Gentile who considers himself to be an outsider, or this red-headed stepchild, he understands that he's been saved. And God has given him this, this treasure and this purpose that is there before him. And a hope, verses 12 to 13. To the end, that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. And in Him, after listening to the message of truth. So what does he say? He says basically this. We have this eternal hope. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is the guaranteed future. I have prayed with so many people that are getting ready to die. I had a, an individual ask me this week. And he says, when you go to the hospital and you're visiting somebody that's going to die, Guaranteed, they're about to die. How do you bring comfort to them? And I said, we talk about heaven. We talk about what they're about to see. I make sure that they understand that they have an eternal hope that's guaranteed through Jesus. And that hope is guaranteed that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. I get them looking forward and hanging on to that assurance. It's not wishful thinking. And when you have that eternal hope, it gives you this heart of worship. The Ephesian Gentiles were people without hope. This last week, I counted, just in, just in the six days, besides the cardiac arrest, on average, Two overdoses a day. A 12-year-old girl this last week took over 50 Tylenol PMs in one sitting. What happened? Hopeless. Hopeless. And it is so sad to, to, to lose that hope. But if you realize, if you focus on what you have an anchor of hope in, 
Jesus. And your anchor of hope is immovable in God. Then it doesn't matter what's going on around you because you know that that anchor of hope will not be moved. You are adopted by God and nothing will change that. Ephesians 2, 12 to 13 says this. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant promises, having no hope without God in the world. But this is one of those good buts. But now, in, notice, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You are no longer an outsider. You're an insider. You are no longer outside of the promises of God. You are in the family of God. Own it. Own that place. Realizing that you have that eternal hope guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. Guaranteed. And that nothing can separate you from that love of God. Not death, nor life, or principalities, or powers, or things above, or, or things below. Nothing can separate you. Blessed be the name of God. For the Jews, they had a hope in a Messiah. Gentiles were hopeless. But now both Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles, they have their hope in Christ. And in Christ alone. And have been given that salvation, verses 13 and 14. Within this, And in Him you were also listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And having believed, you were sealed it with Him in the Holy Spirit of promise. And here is, how do I get saved? You hear the Word. You believe the Word. You are saved and sealed. Word of God is preached. You believe it. God does the work of salvation. God saves you and He seals you. Within this, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, get this, the job of the Holy Spirit is to make your faith a reality. That's why he's with you. The Holy Spirit's job is to make your faith a reality, to know and to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you know. Say, Carrie, I still struggle with my faith. Then look to the Holy Spirit, look to God's word and believe God's word and that's it. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And it, how is it? It's, it's hearing with faith. Paul would say this in Galatians 3, 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Don't just be a listener. But hear it and believe it. Put all of your weight into it. And you'll experience the power and the presence of God like none other within this. You say, Carrie, I have a hard time believing. You have a hard time believing because you're choosing to have a hard time believing. You have to abandon your understanding and lean in fully to the Word of God and the promises of God's Word and hang on to them as if it's the only thing you've got. Because ultimately it is. Ultimately, it is. Everything else will vanish within this. And having heard the gospel, you believe that Jesus is your Lord and saved and sealed and sanctified. Romans chapter 4.11 says this, And he received the sign of the circumcision and the seal of righteousness of faith And when he had, while he was circumcised so that they might be the father of all who believed. Without being circumcised, the righteousness might be credited to them. The Jews 
had a seal that said that they were a Jew. You know what it was? Circumcision. Well, if you do circumcision, does that really change the heart? No. God does one better. I'm going to give you a seal. Not circumcision. It's the Holy Spirit that seals you and keeps you. Hear me clearly. When you feel like you've lost your salvation, when you feel like God's abandoned you, reject that as a lie. Because the Bible says that you are sealed, and that seal, by definition, is a seal of ownership. When Satan wants to come mess with you, he'll come and he'll look at you and he'll go, yeah, oh, dang it. There's God's seal on him. Holy Spirit. All right, I've got to go to God first. God, can I mess with Carrie? He's got your seal. God will say, well, what do you want to do? Well, I want to do this, that, or the other. All right. Thanks a lot, God. <laughs> Satan can't mess with you unless he goes to God first. Why? Because you're sealed. Which means that you are owned by God, protected by God, and there are limitations put on what the devil can do, what the world can do. Now, if you want to put yourself in, in, in bad spots and be a jerk, that's on you. But if you keep in that place of being in Christ, you are protected and sealed. And it's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit promise. Understand, as Paul says this, it's the Holy Spirit is the down payment. How do I know I have eternal life? You want to know? Check the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. That's the down payment. He is the down payment. He's the first fruits of having that eternal life. Every believer is indwelt, baptized, and sealed by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. You are indwelt, baptized, or put into the body of Christ, and sealed by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. You belong to God. And it's nothing you do. It's everything God does. He does that. So what does Paul do? After this big song, hymn, then he prays. And he prays in verses 15 to 23. It's his prayer for the church. He breaks into this prayer. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Was he praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom, of revelation, in knowledge of him. I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you'll know what is the hope of your calling. What are the riches of the glory of inheritance? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ. And when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authorities and power and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age, but the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all the things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills in all. So Paul breaks out in this prayer and then he gives a doxology. But what does he do? He prays this prayer of thanksgiving and he goes, I'm praying for you. Mind you, he's sitting next to a, a soldier. 
I'm praying for you, giving thanks. Why? Because you love God and you love other people. I'm thanking God. Because it's been widely broadcast how much you love God and how much you love other people. Church of Ephesus. Question. Could he say that same thing about Warren Community Fellowship? Could Paul brag on us on how much we love God and we love others? Do you know that that is our mission statement? And it's more than just something that's written in the lobby. It should be written in our hearts. Love God. Love others. If we do that, we complete everything that God has called us to do. Paul says, I'm praying for you. Why? He's in a jail cell. He can't be there. But I'm giving thanks because that's how, that's how, you, that's how you operate. That's how you live. And so within this, and he heard of their faith and this growing faith. It was witness in that among you. Give thanks and making prayers. And what else is he praying? Verses 17 specifically. That God would give to the believer the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. I pray that God would open the eyes of your understanding. Why? Your relationship is your relationship with God. You as an individual need to hear and understand the wisdom of God for yourself. Especially in this corrupt world. I pray as a pastor that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so you'll know. What do I want you to know? The hope of your calling. The anchor for your faith. That you'll look for that future expectation of what God's going to do. That you'll know the riches of your inheritance. Do you realize if you know the riches of your inheritance as a, as a Christ follower, you will not seek out riches of the world. You'll be so satisfied with what God gives you, you're not going to look for other things. I pray as Paul does, that the surpassing greatness of God's power would be experienced in you. And that all of this prayer is based on the demonstrated power of Jesus Christ who rules and reigns from heaven. The same God that gave His promises to raise Jesus from the dead. The same God that sent His Son to redeem you. The same God that did miracles over 2,000 years ago and establishing the church that still is going on today is the same God that wants to empower your life and bless you. Will you let Him? He does. Will you celebrate Him? He's worthy of it. And the next time you start feeling down in the dumps, where you start moping around about all the bad, focus on the good. And look forward on how much more God wants to bring into your life. And allow the Holy Spirit who is present in you to do His work. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for communion. God, I thank You. That in this place, that we can be here and we can honor You, we can worship You, and we can praise You. Lord, I know that each one of us has a different journey and different difficulties in our lives. This world is not an easy place to live, and You're well aware of that. But You've equipped us to be in this world by the power of the Holy Spirit. You've given us the ability to overcome and guaranteed and declared us already as overcomers. May we live in the victory that You've already provided. And may we find all of the things to be joyful over 
In this world, we know, Lord Jesus, you told us, we'll have tribulation. But you also said in the same sentence to be of good cheer because you've overcome the world. At the cross, where you took our sins, died in our place, conquered death to give us an anchor of hope for all eternal life. As we come to this table, it's available to anybody who's placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And as I share with you, it's open to anybody that wants to come and partake of the bread and the cup. But just make sure that when you're coming, you're coming with clean hands and a pure heart. During this time of, of worship and song, just check yourself. My encouragement to you tonight on this communion, whether you're here in this room or watching online, let's make tonight an act of worship and an act of joy and celebration as we take the bread and take the cup. When you're ready, come up, take the elements. And at the end, when everybody has them, hang on to them and we'll take them together. God, I pray blessings over this time. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. He who was before there was light Walked across the pages of time He who made every living thing Behold Him He who heard humanity's cry Left His throne to wake as a child He became like the least of us Behold Him Jesus, Son of God Messiah The Lamb, the Roaring Lion Oh, be still And behold Him He who dined with sinners and saints Healed the blind, the lost and the lame Even now He is in our midst Behold Him He who chose a criminal's end Paid with blood to settle our debt Buried death as He rose to life Behold Him, Jesus, Son of God, Messiah The Lamb, the Roaring Lion Oh, be still and behold Him Jesus, Alpha and Omega Oh, Lord.
So I'll stand before the Lord. Father God, we lift up this bread to you. We're reminded about how blessed we are. Where 2,000 years ago, Lord Jesus, you picked up bread from a table, you broke it, and you gave it to your disciples, and you said, Take eat. This bread represents my body. Given for you. And as often as you eat it, remember me. We consider this bread, may we consider how blessed we are. That this body that we live in is not our eternal dwelling place. This body that's contaminated by sin will return to the earth. But we have a mansion, a dwelling place in heaven, not made with hands. That we get to enter in. Because that sin was paid for at the cross. Lord Jesus, you took upon your body our punishment. You rose again three days later, physically victorious over death, so that we would live again, rise again in eternity with you. We thank you for the blessing of this bread. And we bless you in taking it out of obedience. We say thank you in Jesus' name. Let's all take the bread. Let's lift up the cup before the Lord. God, we thank you for this cup. We thank you for the blessing that, that it is to us to know that, that our sins are washed away. The blood of bull and goats could only atone or cover for sin. You gave it for a short time. But the blood of Jesus was shed for an eternal cleansing of all our sins past, present, and future. That we are washed and made clean. We stand before a holy God right now. Before the holy throne of the creator of the universe called children of God. And that's all because of what Jesus did at the cross. We thank you for the blessing of this cup. The blessing of our redemption and the blessing of our salvation. And as we receive this cup, we do so out of an act of obedience, remembering you, Lord Jesus, and honoring your command as often as we do this to remember you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Let's all take the cup together. Thank you, Lord. the dead came to life. I believe there were wonders and signs, and you're still the same. I believe every word that you said. I believe there are scars in your hands, that your goodness is good without end, and you're still the change. I will tell of your wonders, sing of your grace. The God of creation knows me by name. The Lord is faithful yesterday, now and always. Oh.
age after age, all generations will bow down and praise. The Lord is faithful yesterday, now, and always, always. I believe you will come in the clouds. I believe you are here even now. In your presence I know there is power. To say, I will tell of your wonders, sing of your grace. God of creation knows me by name. The Lord is faithful yesterday, now, and always. Always. Your mercy is mighty, age after age. All generations will bow down and praise. Lord is faithful yesterday, now, and always, always. You are, you are, you always will be God. You are, you always will be God. Yes, you always will be tell of your wonders, sing of your grace, the God of creation knows me by name, the Lord is faithful yesterday, now and always, always, your mercy is mighty, age after age, all generations will bow down and praise, the Lord is faithful yesterday, in the blessings of God the rest of this week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.